0: Welcome. This is a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Melanie C, a recovered compulsive overeater living in Canby, Oregon. Today is Sunday, June 19th, 2022. The share ID numbers for Friday, June 17th, 2022, are the following. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time work weekday Big Book study is 19. 081. that's 19,081, and the share ID for the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Weekday Big Book Study Group is 19082, 19,082. This morning, A Vision for You presents To Wives, Amazing Spiritual Principles for All. Chapter 8 in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous is entitled To Wives. We know that Bill W. was the author of this chapter, doing his very best to pin the chapter from the viewpoint of the wife of the male alcoholic. The explanation for this is that there were many, many more men, and in this case, addressing husbands, than alcoholics to women. The attempt is to be sympathetic and understanding (coughs) of the wife and, and family and their suffering, describing how the wives have tried to keep things together, cope with a myriad of difficulties, and generally keep the children protected and the home still functioning.
1: Soon, Bill gives well-intentioned guidance
0: to wives on how further to approach and not reproach the alcoholic husband, being loving, cheerful, making only suggestions, and being mild-tempered, never pushy or angry. This chapter ultimately describes the grave sickness of the the active alcoholic and how to delicately maneuver the relationship. These relationships are not restricted to the alcoholic alone, however. There will be other relationships involved, many others, to carry on and carry out with in understanding, communication, and love. There are children, parents, friends, employers, acquaintances, and what about the wives themselves? Bill is quite clear that the wife can have a great influence on the husband from many different angles. And experientially, Bill W. can pass along great wisdom from chapters out of his own personal story that have worked with his and Lois's marriage. This is a summary from the details of very specific treatment day to day. But what if we back up a bit and become more global about this chapter, chiefly considering spiritual. W's words of guidance, from the viewpoint of helping someone else and and self, rather than specifically focusing on a wife. So what about the spiritual care of self? Can we read this and see spiritual principles that are fitting for everyone? Are there spiritual principles to extrapolate from this writing? Hmm. Today we are going to consider just this. Dig deeper. Dig way deeper. This chapter is largely about relationship and care and support and love for each. Very spiritual in its nature. An amazing set of spiritual principles lie within the words here. Relationship is deeply spiritual and intimate. It includes innumerable types and kinds of partners, family, and friends, etc., etc. This is how we make it through. All spiritual in nature. Let's look for these. Here to help us identify the beauty of spiritual principles, perhaps locked away in this writing, is one of our own. She has spent a great deal of time studying this chapter to reveal the ethereal message within. Quite conceivably, we will all leave here today thinking of this chapter personally and perhaps differently. The prayer is that everyone will be encouraged in recovery with a broader viewpoint. I am pleased to introduce to you today as our guest speaker... Janet B. She is a humble, dedicated servant, always learning, teaching, and paying forward the gifts of experience and knowledge that she has moved through in her spiritual discovery without hesitation. A Vision for You is very grateful to have her with us today presenting on this topic. So please take a seat and settle in, cozy in. And without further ado, help me welcome to the line this morning, Janet B. All the way from New Jersey. Good morning, Janet. Hi, good morning, Melanie. Thank you. Thank you. Always happy, thrilled to be here. Um, So I can't think of too many people who feel lonelier than the wife of an alcoholic, right? Imagine waiting up for him night after night, not knowing when or if he's coming home. And if he does, whether he'll be sullen and silent or raging and abusive. It's easy to imagine that this wife, even though she may have been a woman of faith her entire life, It's easy to imagine her whispering in the dark, God, where are you? Do you even hear me anymore? Do I matter? And then we get to this chapter, Two Wives, where it says on page 104 that we want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to overcome. And you can almost feel these wives who've, like, gone before her reaching out to the struggling wife to say, you matter to us. And I believe that if we listen closely to the words in this chapter, we will hear God saying, and you matter to me. Because, of course, isn't that all that we really want to hear? And, of course, it's true, right? For just a minute, before I like get into the meat of this chapter, I want to back up to Chapter 4, We Agnostics, where they tell us the main object of this great big book that it says it's to, quote, Enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem, end quote. So if this power, this God, is going to solve my problem, and of course the first problem I wanted him to solve was my food problem, this God must be able to think, right? So the wind is a power greater than me, but the wind can't think. This God must think. This God must be smart. I have two master's degrees. I couldn't figure out how to solve this problem. This God must be strong because this illness was stronger than I was. But most, most important, this God must care about me, must love me. Otherwise, why would he bother trying to solve my problem? So that's the God, this loving God who we matter to, who we're trying to encounter or encounter more deeply in the pages of Two Wives. And this chapter generally doesn't get a lot of play, right? Often people skip it saying, well, I'm not married to an alcoholic. It doesn't apply to me. But I think there's lots of principles that we can apply in our own recovery because my recovery isn't primarily about food plans and meetings. It's about how I practice spiritual principles in all my affairs. And for someone new, that may sound weird, right? When I came to my first OA meeting, all I wanted was to stop binging. And, of course, the numero uno thing I was interested in was a magic food plan. Well, it didn't work. Six and a half years later, and finally someone explained I had to change, that I had to have this thing called a spiritual experience. And what's that? I mean, page 25 explains it. It's basically God comes in and rewires my heart and takes my selfish, self-centered priorities and makes them more like his unselfish, loving priorities. Well, how does that happen? Do I just say a prayer and God comes in with his gardening tools? Tried that, didn't work. Um, But what did work is this 12-step program, which tells me I need to get a conception of God, surrender to him, clean up my class, help others, and practice these principles in all my affairs. Because, of course, there's some basic spiritual principles we have to practice if we want this spiritual experience, right? It's like I can't say, God, come into my life and then go and rob a bank. Um, And we actually don't need to wait until we're through the steps to start practicing them. Right away, we're told, like, we have to be honest. We have to be unselfish. We have to put spiritual principles to use. And this chapter, Two Wives, is chock full of some amazing spiritual principles and some, like, awesome promises for us if we practice them. Um, We don't have time to go through every single principle, so I've just picked the ones that had meaning to me and that I hope will be helpful. Um, The first half of the chapter is really about how to help someone who's an addict. And then halfway through, it does this, like, big switch, like, okay, wife, now let's talk about you and your spiritual issues. So let's dive in on page 104 where it says, We want to analyze mistakes we've made. We want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to be overcome. And I love that because what it's telling me is that God's going to do one of two things if I work this program. He's either going to change my situation or he's going to change me so that I'll be okay in my situation. So for me, that's a huge demonstration of how much I matter to God. Door number one, he sits at his cosmic computer and reroutes things so that my situation is changed for the better. Or door number two, he changes me. Okay, moving to the bottom of page 106, it talks about what happens to an alcoholic as the sprees grow closer. It says that the deepening pal of remorse depression and inferiority settled down on our loved ones and these things terrified and distracted us. Terrified and distracted us. Well, distracted us from what? I know for myself, if I become overly focused on a family member or anything else for that matter, I'm distracted from God. Um, The way I like to think about it is like I'm swimming in one of those lap pools that has the lanes roped off and I'm swimming toward God. And I visualize that. I actually visualize God and me swimming toward him. And if I start swimming in another lane, I lose focus on God and doing his will. And if I let people and things in other lanes come into my lane, I lose my focus on God, other people's recovery, and the future, right? Because that's what we're worried about. That, This person's drinking or whatever the situation is will get worse, will make my life better. Their recovery and the future are things that are not in my lane. So continuing on the top of page 107, it says that as animals on a treadmill, we patiently and wearily climbed, falling back in exhaustion after each futile attempt to reach solid ground. That reminds me of like that little hamster in a cage on that wheelie thing where he's working and working and not getting anywhere. And that's honestly how I was myself in my first early days in recovery. I did work really hard and I didn't get anywhere. Um, Those of you who've heard my story know in my first six and a half years, my record was two weeks of abstinence. Most times I couldn't make it to lunch. Um, I just kept getting worse. Because even though I was doing a lot of work, I wasn't doing the right work. It was like being a diabetic and the doctor telling me to take penicillin, and I take the penicillin. Well, I'm doing the work. I'm doing what I'm told, but I haven't been told the right thing. I need a new doctor who gives me the right medicine. And I think the point here is that I needed to take responsibility to read this book which ultimately, thank God, I did. Someone told me to do it, and I was desperate enough, and I did. Um, and so I would just say if anyone's new here and they're looking for a sponsor and not sure what to do, read this book and then vet your sponsor and make sure that he or she has read this book and does it, does the steps the way they're outlined in this book. Like, we deserve a doctor who's going to give us insulin for our diabetes and not penicillin. Okay, um, Continuing on page 107, it says that the wives endured watching their husbands go to sanitariums, hospitals, jails. And the wives say, we naturally made mistakes. And that's the second time this chapter uses the word mistakes. And I really like that because most of us tend to fall off on the side of the bed of either being too easy or too hard on ourselves. I was actually the first type. I'd make a mistake in a difficult situation. Like let's say I would yell at one of my kids when maybe a gentle reprimand would have done. And afterwards I would say, I didn't deal with that situation well. I must be in spiritual kindergarten. I'm nowhere. I have no recovery. I'm in relapse, you know, all that. But they're saying when things are hard, we're going to make mistakes and they don't pass judgment on us and they tell us We shouldn't pass judgment on ourselves, right? If I drift into remorse, I'm of no use to anyone. So yes, we should fix things. And yes, I should and did go to my children and say, I was wrong. I'm sorry that I was overly harsh. But we also don't want to fall off the bed on the other side and say, I'm only human and enable ourselves either. If I lose my temper, 100% of the time, it's because of me. It's my fault, but it's a mistake. And if I learn from it, it doesn't make me a bad person not worthy of God's love. Okay, on page 108, the second paragraph says, try not to condemn your alcoholic husband no matter what he says or does. Remember, he's just a very sick, unreasonable person. When he angers you, remember that he's very ill. So I see two things they're telling me to practice here with difficult people. And, again, this could be a spouse. It could be a child. It could be a boss. Um, First, it's telling me don't condemn. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, First, condemning never works, right? Who of us got into recovery because someone pulled us aside and said, you know, you're really a horrible compulsive eater. You're overweight. You're ruining your life. You're ruining other people's lives get your act together. And then we just said, Oh yeah, I didn't know that. Thanks for the condemnation. I think I'm going to work a 12 step program and get my act together. Thank you for your criticism. It never works that way. Right. Um, Also, if I'm condemning, it's dangerous for me spiritually because if I'm condemning you, I'm at the top of the mountain and guess where you are. And that means I'm loaded with pride and the only place to go if I'm on a mountaintop full of pride is tumbling down on my behind. So the second thing it says is that when he angers you, remember that he's very ill. Remembering that's actually a verb. It's an action step that I can take. I can remind myself that this person is ill, right? When we're resolving resentments, we say that this person is perhaps spiritually sick. If I'm living with a raging alcoholic, I think it's safe to assume that person is perhaps spiritually sick, is ill. And I need to have the kind of compassion I would if I were living with someone who had a brain tumor that made them act in the ways they acted. a couple of months ago, I went to pick up my mom for a doctor's appointment and before I got there, she got all agitated and had the front desk of her place call me to say like, where are you? You know, your mom says you're late. Now I was right on time. And I have to confess, I was a bit annoyed at my mom. I said like, mom, why'd you have them call me? I'm not late. But a couple of weeks later, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So now when she gets agitated, or says things that aren't true, and even things that aren't nice. I really have not one shred of annoyance or resentment because now I understand that she's sick. Okay, so in this chapter, um, they go ahead and they talk about four different types of drinkers and the kind of things we can do to help them depending on the type they are. So I would encourage anyone, who actually is living with an alcoholic or an addict, to read through and pinpoint what type they are because they give slightly different advice depending on what type of person we're dealing with. But at the top of page 111, they start with general principles that can be applied to all. Um, They say the first principle of success is to never be angry. Well, that's kind of hard if we've got someone who's mentally ill or drinking or abusive, But remember what page 66 tells us, we can't harbor resentment. I can't be a safe harbor for resentment. I can't just say, oh, that's okay. This person gets me mad and I'm entitled to wallow in it. What I'm supposed to do is, of course, acknowledge I'm angry, right? We don't want to be in denial. But then I have to do something about it. I inventory it. I share it with another person. I ask God to remove it and I make any amends I need to. And they end that paragraph, first paragraph on page 111, by saying that patience and good temper are most necessary because, again, it's a disease we're dealing with. It's not a moral issue. And the second principle they give us is our next thought is you should never tell him what he must do about his drinking. And I say never tell him what he must do about his fill-in-the-blank. We should not be telling people what they should do about pretty much anything. Of course, if we have small children, we can tell them don't run in the street when a car is coming, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about other grown grownups. Um, the best example I have is my husband, not an alcoholic at all, but he used to smoke and I didn't like it. I didn't like it one bit, um, but I really didn't tell him what he needed to do about his smoking. All I said was, honey, we have a couple of little kids So if you're going to keep smoking, we need to take out some life insurance for, you know, on you. And then I actually asked him, how often can I remind you that I don't like your smoking? And he said once a month, and I pretty much stuck with that. Um, By the way, he did ultimately quit smoking, but not because I nagged him. I didn't nag him, but I did get life insurance because that was a boundary to protect me and my small children. The third principle here be determined that your husband's drinking, or your husband's fill in the blank, or your children's refusal to listen to you, or your boss is not appreciating you, or anything, anything that anyone else does, is not going to spoil your life. And it actually says, and to me, this is the most hopeful, beautiful line it is possible to have a full and useful life even though your husband continues to drink and i would say we can say even though your fill in the blank relationship continues to fill in the blank whatever action we don't like our book tells us our recovery is not dependent on circumstances it's dependent upon our relationship with god if i'm too upset over what someone else is doing um, then there's a problem with my relationship with God. I would say, for me personally, the thing that blocked me from a more full, a more youthful life was anger and fear surrounding my kids. Um, and sometimes a well-meaning friend would say to me, "Well, it's normal that you worry so much about them. You're a mom, but I worried so much because my attention was in the wrong place. Um, there's a prayer that really helped me a lot with my kids. I'll just say it in case it's helpful to someone here. Um, I'd say, Lord, I see that I don't really love my children too much. I love you too little in proportion to them. Only if I love you supremely will I love everything else well. And, Lord, please properly capture my heart so that I can love you supremely and love everyone else properly. The fourth principle they list here says, do not set your heart on reforming your husband. You may be able to do so no matter how hard you try. Remember, this program tells me to live and let live, so I can't set my heart on reforming my husband smoking, um, reforming my college kids so that they want to go to church, or anyone else's drinking, eating, gambling, or anything else. So they've given me four principles so far. Don't get angry. Don't tell him what to do about his drinking. Be determined that your husband's drinking or this person's whatever is not going to spoil spoil your life and don't set your heart on reforming the person. And they acknowledge that these are these suggestions are sometimes difficult. But they say you will save many a heartbreak if you can succeed in observing them. So if my heart is breaking, I actually have kind of an antidote. I can ask myself, which of these principles have I violated? Have I gotten angry and harbored resentment? Have I been telling someone what they need to do about what I perceive as their issues? Am I letting what they're doing destroy my life? And am I, trying to, am I setting my heart on changing someone else? Of course, I can always hope. I can always pray for another person. But my heart needs to be set on one thing primarily, and that's God and my own getting close to him, doing his will, and being of use to him and others. Okay, on page 115, fifth principle, it says you must be on guard not to embarrass or harm your husband. Remember, we're told back in Chapter 6 that I have no right to save my skin at another person's expense. So a good principle when we're doing our 10 steps is if I have a resentment against Susie Q, I want to call someone who doesn't know Susie Q, or I want to say it without using her name to someone who won't guess. Um, I'm not going to call Susie Q's sponsor or a mutual friend. It's best as much as possible to do things with people who don't know Susie Q. Remember, I have no right to save my skin at another person's expense. Then, then we get a promise there, um, at the end of the second paragraph on page 115. It says, your new courage, good nature, and lack of self-consciousness will do wonders for you socially. So if I practice these principles, I'm going to start getting more courage. That means my fears are going to go away or at least lessen. I'm going to have a good nature. Because I'm not going to be so tense from trying to control and manage the world. Um, and I'm not going to worry about what other people think about me. And then, of course, that will all help me to be a better friend. Okay. Next principle, still on page 115, says, In dealing with kids and their father, it's best not to take sides in any argument he has with them while drinking. So, again, my husband wasn't an alcoholic, but, of course, we differed on some things in raising our kids. And the rule that I always had with myself, I didn't keep it, but I aspired to, um, when my kids were little, was that unless my husband was doing something dangerous, I wouldn't interfere. Now, I think we have to be careful because I know, for me, the word dangerous can be very loosely interpreted to mean anything I don't agree with. I mean, I thought him taking them to McDonald's was dangerous, right? Um, But I'm talking about I should keep my mouth shut unless he does something genuinely dangerous, like, I don't know, leaving them in the bathtub and going outside when they're two years old, which he never did, of course, but that's dangerous. Then I could speak up. In hindsight, I should have kept my mouth shut a whole lot more. Um, And they talk about something similar at the beginning of this chapter, on page 106 it says we've tried to hold the love of our children for their father which i think is an instinctive thing for a mom to do if she thinks her husband is doing everything wrong and that her kids won't love love him how many times when my kids were younger did i try and manipulate relationships and things and i would think things like okay if i don't tell my husband to go outside and play basketball with daniel then my husband won't have a good relationship with Daniel. And when Daniel grows up, he's going to remember my husband's neglect and hate him. Well, Daniel is now 20 and he adores my husband. More than he adores me, actually, if I'm going to be honest. Um, So my job is to let other people have their own relationships and not try to manage and control them, either to get people to love each other Or if I'm mad at one family member to get the other family members to agree with me that that person is rotten. I have to let everyone have their own relationships. And sometimes I've prayed like, God, please bless the relationship between my husband and my daughter, my husband and my son, my son and my daughter, my son and I, you know, et cetera. I go through all the different relationships that we have in our house and I pray for the people and their relationships, And then I pray for us as a family unit. Okay, um, bottom of page 115. Another principle: Don't lie on behalf of your husband in order to protect them. We are people who have to be honest, even if there will be consequences. Right? In the chapter two, employers, it says that sometimes an employer may worry if a guy's uh, that a guy is drunk when his wife calls and says he's sick. And in that chapter, it says, if he's trying to recover and he's drunk he will tell you, even if it means the loss of his job, for he knows he must be honest if he would live at all. So we don't try to shield people from consequences by lying. And by the way, um, for our own recovery, lying um, lying is one thing that I believe the book says will guarantee that God won't come in. At the beginning of chapter five, it has a whole paragraph about the importance of rigorous honesty. And I think if we're not honest, it's like we're taking a big black magic marker and writing the words, keep out God, across our hearts. God won't coexist with dishonesty. So on page 116, there's a shift. It's like they're saying, okay, wives, up until now, we've been talking to you all about how to help your husband, but now let's talk about you. They say, we've remarked elsewhere how much better life is when lived on a spiritual plane. If God can solve the age-old riddle of alcoholism, he can solve your problems too. And I could just see a wife reading it like, wait, what? They're saying me? No, I was here, you know, to help the drunk I'm married to. And they're saying me too? No way, Jose. But the chapter gently presses on saying, we wives found Like everyone else, we were afflicted with pride, self-pity, vanity, self-centeredness, selfishness, and dishonesty. And at the bottom of page 116, they say, yeah, we used to think we were good people, capable of being nicer if our husbands stopped drinking, right? Basically, they were saying, well, I wouldn't have been nasty if my husband, my kids, my fill-in-the-blank hadn't done whatever wrong thing I think they've done. But remember, our recovery is never dependent on circumstance. It's always dependent on our relationship with God. If anyone ever says, like, I picked up because, and then their because has to do with a situation, it's like I try to gently tell them, "Uh uh-uh, we're on the wrong track. What's wrong with us spiritually? Was there a resentment? Was there a fear? Was there a harm I didn't fix? Was there a self-centeredness? It's always dependent on my relationship with God. And it says, okay, here's the solution. We try to put spiritual principles to work in every department of our lives. And it says if we practice the opposite, and the opposites would be humility, gratitude, unselfishness, honesty, and self-sacrifice. It says on page 117, if we practice these things, God will give me a radically changed attitude toward my husband. God sees me. I matter to God. God himself will see the work I'm doing, that any wife is doing, even if her husband doesn't, even if no one else does, God sees, and God will radically rewire our hearts. So as a result of applying these spiritual principles, he gives us all these gifts. Lack of fear, lack of worry, lack of hurt feelings. We matter. Our problems, our lives matter. They matter to God. And then on page 117, it tells me something that I personally don't really like. It says, all problems will not be solved at once. The old problems will still be with you, and this is as it should be. This is as it should be, right? I do all this work and God's not going to wave a magic wand and make all the problems go away. As soon as I do the step work. I mean, I'm just saying, if I were God, I would have designed things differently. Um, But I think I'm slowly learning that whenever I'm going through a difficult situation here in my own house, it's these difficult situations more than anything else that drive me deeper into the arms of God that forced me to rely on him more, that forced me to look at the idols in my own life that are causing me this distress. Do I have an idol of a perfect marriage? That's what some of us do. Do I have an idol of perfect children who go to the perfect college and have perfect careers? Or do I have an idol of the perfect relationship with my children, which is the idol that drove me for so many years? I was often paralyzed with fear that when my children grew up and were no longer under my control, they wouldn't love me anymore. And that idolatry, that fear led me to alternate between being overly lenient to manipulate them into loving me and overly tough to retaliate when I didn't think they loved me right. Um, I'm happy to report that God is good and these relationships have been mended. I have a really good relationship with both my kids now. But it took a good deal of inventory work and amends and prayer. And um, here's a prayer that I've used which of, with my kids, which, of course, can be changed to fit anything that's too important in our lives. Um, God, I entrust my children to you now. I release them to your protective care, knowing that they're much safer with you than in my clinging hands. Please remove all idolatry of my children and my relationship with my children from my heart so that I don't endanger them or myself. Please remove all fear that I won't matter to them. I release my children to you and I release my fear to you so that I'm free to cling to your hand. Thank you that that as I entrust my children to you, you are free to shower blessings on them. Thank you that your presence goes with them wherever they go. Thank you that you will guide my children and help them learn to trust you. And thank you that I matter to you, Thank you that your presence stays with me as I relax and trust you. God, I am excited to watch and see what you will do. Amen. Okay, back to the book, page 117. They continue on and say that these workouts, meaning these difficult discussions we sometimes need to have, should be regarded as part of your education. You will make mistakes, but if you do so, so this is a conditional promise, if. If you're in earnest, they won't drag you down. Instead, you will capitalize on them. Okay, capitalizing on my mistakes, that's, that's the eighth principle. What does that even mean to capitalize on my mistakes? Well, I actually don't think it means that I'm going to be 100% free of things like fear and angry, anger. I don't think in this lifetime it's ever going to hit the 100% number. But here's what can happen or bounce back period can get shorter. So where before maybe I got a resentment or a fear and I'd be angry for three days or afraid for three days or so depressed that I couldn't get out of bed for three days, then maybe through working the steps and practicing, it's down to two days, then one, then two hours, and then maybe 10 minutes. I mean, I don't always have it down to 10 minutes, but I can generally keep it down to way less time than I used to. That's one way to know we're growing spiritually, if our bounce back period is shorter. How else can we capitalize on our mistakes? Well, the steps teach me I need to look at my part. So if let's say one of my kids is mouthing off to me and um, I used to get and I get upset or angry, I don't stop with that. I don't stop with saying, she mouthed off to me, my part is I had an expectation that my children will not mouth off to me and will treat me with respect. Mm, That's true. I did have an expectation, but I need to go deeper and look at the flaw in my makeup. Maybe I'm making an idol out of how much I matter to my children. And then I think we can tell something's an idol when it doesn't just hurt our feelings. But it feels like we got punched in the gut and can't get up. So I identify what my problem, what my idol is. I talk to someone who won't enable me. I go to God and I ask him to remove my defect. Like, God, I'm sorry. I ask him to remove the defect. For me, it's often idolatry. Remove the fear. Remove the anger. And set about practicing the opposite. For me, the opposite of of idolatry is worship of God. So maybe I'll just go sing a worship song to God. We practice the opposite. Okay, next principle, bottom of page 117 says, often you must carry the burden of avoiding resentments or keeping them under control. And in the margin of my big book, I wrote, that's not fair. And maybe it isn't fair, but as my friend Melissa always says, fairness is not my code anymore. It may not be fair, but it's loving, right? Love is now my code. And what a great opportunity to practice self-sacrifice, right, which the book tells me I have to do. If someone utters a snarky remark, I can assume mm, maybe, maybe my kid, my husband had a bad day. I try not to start an argument. I absorb it. I just let it go. That's a way of me practicing self-sacrifice, which is critical to my own recovery. Now, again, I am not saying that if someone's married to someone who's beating them, they're supposed to just take it. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? Um, I'm talking about an insensitive remark. Sometimes it's okay to just let something go. Next principle on page 118, the second full paragraph, it says, Your husband knows he owes you more than sobriety. He wants to make good, yet you must not expect too much. And I think there's a couple things for us here. If we don't expect much, then we're not disappointed, right? We're always happily surprised. But also, it says he wants to make good. I think we're supposed to assume the best about people, that people generally want to do the right thing. If someone does something and I can ascribe either a good motive or a bad motive, I think love requires me to ascribe a good motive to them. Maybe I'm wrong, but isn't it better to assume something good about someone and be wrong than assume the worst in them and be wrong? That's for sure how I want people to deal with me, to give me the benefit of the doubt. Um, Next principle, page 119. When resentful thoughts come, try to pause and count your blessings. So we can intentionally look for our blessings. Um, Like I have a job. I have heat in the house in the winter and air conditioning in the summer. I have a husband who loves me and who supports my recovery work. Um, And by the way, I don't think it's helpful to just sit there and, and just put these blessings on an app. I do put my blessings on an app. Um, but then I pause and I thank God for them. I thank God for my husband who provides for me. I thank God my children are safe. Um, I don't just make a list like a grocery list. I go to God because that's another way of building my relationship with God. And then, of course, a beautiful principle on the bottom of page 119. Find a great cause to live for. You probably need fresh interest as much as your husband and a great cause to live for. I mean, how lucky are we, right? We get to recover, we get to help others, and we get to grow closer to God in the practice and make the best friends we've ever had in our lives. I personally can't think of a greater cause. And then they kind of switch gears a bit on the top of page 20. um, First, they tell us how to live that out. They say, think about what you can put into life, into Um, instead of how much you can take out of it. So maybe when we go places, we think, how can I contribute here? Instead of what's in it for me, how can I best serve God and the people here? And they really change gears here on page 120. They start talking about what happens if your husband drinks again, okay? And I love how they deal with it. They say, perhaps your husband has made a fair start and things are going well, but then he gets drunk. What do you do? And they say, if you're satisfied, he really wants to get over drinking, you need not be alarmed. So what they're telling us is that it's possible that someone really wants to stop, but they stumble. I mean, how could that be? How could someone want to stop, but stumble? And honestly, like, that was me, right? My first six and a half years in OA, I desperately wanted to stop. But one reason someone might want to stop and stumble is they're given wrong information. The second is maybe they need to just um, be have something really pointed out in a direct way. So, for instance, for my first six and a half years, I went to meetings where they read the beginning of chapter five at pretty much every meeting talking about honesty, honesty, honesty. It never made a dent in me until someone pointed it out to me. We can hear something so many times that it doesn't make sense. Um, But it says someone can really want to get over it and stumble. And it tells us what to do, right? Um, It says, Cheer him up and ask how you can be still more helpful. Well, I can imagine that is the last thing that a wife wants to do, right? She finally gets some peace and he gets drunk. And they say, cheer him up and see how you can be even more helpful. And I think about that in terms of sponsoring, right? Isn't it easy for us to say, I've put so much time and effort into helping this person, and now they go out and they pick up again. Forget it. I'm done but maybe I'm supposed to be even more helpful. It's way easy to just slam the door and say, I'm done, find someone else. But to be more helpful, that means I have to get creative. I have to really get in there and think, okay, why did this person stumble? Now, if it's because they're not willing to go to any lengths, right, let's say I tell them you have to make three calls a day, and they say, yeah, you know what, I'm not going to. Well, that's different. But if they say, you know, I've done everything, I can't figure out why, then I need to get in the weeds with them and help them figure out why. Remember, um, in the forward to the second edition, it says that 25% of the original fellows who really tried recovered after some relapse. Imagine if they'd given up on that 25%. And by the way, like, I for sure would have been included in that 25%. So they tell us like not to be alarmed if the person means business and that yes, it's infinitely better that a person has had no relapse at all. It's not a bad thing if the person sees he has to redouble his spiritual activities if he expects to survive. Okay. So that as a sponsor is my job to help the person see what spiritual activities do they really need to redouble if they're on their fourth step and they're, not putting in much time. They need to at least like do double time, right? And work on that. Um, They have to work the steps harder, more self-sacrifice for others, more time with God, more surrender of things I'm not quite willing to surrender to God, more service, more love. And they tell us, if he gets drunk, don't blame yourself, right? As a wife, a sponsor, a friend, I'm never the cause of someone else's drinking or binging. And by the way, no one else is ever the cause of mine. Okay, we're in the home stretch here. Um, bottom of page 120, it says God has either removed your husband's liquor problem or he has not. If not, it had better be found out right away. Then you and your husband can get right down to fundamentals. If a repetition is to be prevented, Place the problem along with everything else in God's hands. Okay, there's a lot here and a lot that can help us as compulsive eaters. So let's try to break that down. It says that God has either removed your husband's liquor problem or he has not. Or for us, God has either removed our compulsive eating problem or he has not. Uh, What does that even mean? Is God up in heaven flipping a coin? Heads, I'll remove Janet's eating problem. Tails, I won't. Um, No, no. They're telling me that if God hasn't removed my food problem, I've not placed my food problem and everything else in his hands. Remember, Chapter 4 tells us either God is everything or he's nothing, meaning either I give God everything or it's as if I gave him nothing. I can't give him my food plan but, like, cheat on my taxes or cheat on my husband. God has to have everything. So I think what they're telling us is to see what we haven't placed in his hands, and then do it, right? I think that's what the fundamentals are. And it makes me think back to, like, middle school social studies where we learned, like, about the king and the serfs, And as long as the serfs were on the king's land, that when the invading army comes to attack, the king pulls up the drawbridges and all the serfs who are on the land are safe and protected. So if I'm on the king's land, but I wander off through dishonesty, through lack of doing what I know the king wants me to do, for a refusal to make amends, for you know, a demand to believe that I'm right and hang on to resentment, then when the invading army comes and I'm not on the king's land, I'm not safe and protected. Not ever because the king doesn't love me, but because I, in my self-will, have wandered off. So they're telling us we're liable to drink or eat compulsively if we wander off the king's land. But the good thing about this king is that he will always, always take us back, always. Okay, so on the final page of this chapter, page 121, the writers of this chapter um, close by saying, we realize this is hard stuff but we really want to help you avoid unnecessary difficulties. And then they conclude by saying, good luck and God bless you. They're asking God, the creator who flung the moon, the sun, the stars, and every planet into place to bless us, to bless. That means to confer divine favor. They ask God to confer his divine favor on us. And if we approach him in humility, he always will. Because whether we are wives living with raging alcoholics who feel we are unseen and unheard, or compulsive eaters the way that I was, feeling our lives are unmanageable, that no human power can save us, who experience a loneliness that feels unbearable and that like earth people can't understand, and who need nothing short of a miracle. I hope this chapter helps us to see that we matter. We always matter to God and that really and truly the age of miracles is still with us. And with that, i pass. Thanks. Thank you very, very much for that thorough account of chapter eight, chapter two wise. I did find it amazing and I found the principles amazing and what a deeper dive, a deeper look at how to personalize this particular piece. Very, very, very stunning for me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Janet. You've given so much of yourself in this study today. It's it's just amazing. I wanted to let everybody know the share ID number for today. This will be Sunday, June 19th, 2022, and it is 19085, 19,085. For your pleasure to be able to review this and pass this particular presentation on. Well, the lines are now open for questions. If you have a question for Janet, please unmute your phone by pressing star one on your phone keypad. Offer your first name, the first letter of your last name, and perhaps your state. Once you've asked your question, please press star one again immediately to remute your line. Who would like to ask Janet a question?
2: There C see looking again
0: Loretta K. H.
2: Loretta H. Veronica K.
1: Veronica C. I
3: said Veronica and Elaine.
4: Anyone else this morning? Star one. Well, it sounds like we got a few this to start out with this
0: morning. Good. We have Surrey, Loretta. Veronica and Elaine. Let's start out with Suri. Your question, please. And questions only today.
2: Um, hi. Uh, this is Suri. Can I be heard?
0: You can. You can. There's a little bit of static in the line, but you can be heard. Story yeah, one, I, Janet.
2: Okay. I apologize. Um, I'm driving, so I apologize for the static. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So first of all, Jana, thank you so much for your share. I and, and for your blessing at the end, um, it really brought to my eyes because I'm learning about blessings and, and, and just the blessing from the heart and the power and, and to point out that that chapter ends with a blessing. Um, my question is, uh, you spoke about idolatry and idols and, and almost as fear in the same sentence. Um, and and how it could be, you know, on my unmanageability and, and not doing the part um, could be, um, you know, a relationship with the kids. I guess my question is, um, when your issues with the food are just one of the complete unmanageability of everything in your life how do you where do you start and how do you eliminate some of those idols and and understand the fears to be that especially okay
0: with food. Um, thank you for your questions, Sherry. Mm-hmm. okay so if i understand you correctly you're asking there's the food and then there's also this other stuff so again, I would say, thank God for the steps, because the steps are in order. And I think if we just take them in order, it'll work that way. And the in doing the fourth step, that's when we can really inventory our fears. And for me, right, the idolatry comes out in fear, because it's a fear that this thing that is overly important to me, that I won't get it or that I'll lose it. So I think a fear inventory is a good way to kind of analyze it. And then separately, I sometimes I just treat idolatry as a defect on its own. So I hope that helps. Thank you very much, C, for your question this morning.
4: Loretta H. Thank you. Your question. Thank you.
0: Your question now, please, and then
4: Veronica will follow you, Loretta. Good morning, Melody and
5: Janet. Thank you, thank you for just sharing your experience, strength, and hope, and that you realize all your privileges come from God and the work my question is how do you balance the work and the family? Because that's where I sometimes get into a little bit of trouble because like you, I love this program. It saved my life, but sometimes I don't know how to balance that. So I just want you to share how you balance all the things you do and, um, have a life beyond your wildest dream. Thank you.
4: Hi,
0: okay. Um, so I actually think this is a kind of question that is really important that we bring to our 11 step and go over with individually with our sponsors because so for instance, um, I have one sponsee and her husband really wants like a lot of her time. Um, he just wants pretty much every spare second of her time. And so for her, it might be a little different than another sponsee whose husband is like way more easygoing. Um, and different if someone has little kids versus grown kids. So, but I guess in general principles is the book says we spend much of our spare time doing this work so obviously like when I'm at work that's not spare time when I'm taking care of my family that's that's not my spare time Um, but a general rule that I think is guiding for all is that if I'm able to watch as much Netflix as I would like I'm not doing enough work for others so I it's again I think we all have to see what which one of our time is spare time. And if my husband like wants me to, you know, do something with him, then that might not be spare time. Um, and then just kind of figure much of that spare time is what I should spend. So, but again, I think it's hard to give individual rules like X number of hours a day. So I think between prayer, meditation, using that guiding principle, and talking with our sponsors, we can generally figure it out. Thanks. Thank you very much, Loretta
4: H., for your question. Next up, Veronica. Veronica C., your question, please. And then Elaine, you'll be next. Star one, Veronica C. I apologize.
1: Thank you, Melody and Janet, for today. It's really wonderful. Um, I know the spiritual malady is, for me, the crux of the work here and working the 12 steps. But And if you don't do it, you will continue to falter. My thing is, how do you contend with anger? Because sometimes anger is such an emotion that it can just pop up and it could be uh, a very impulsive thing. How do you contend with that in difficult situations?
4: I mean, I guess the the only way really that
0: I know how to deal with it is the way outlined in the big book where I see that I'm angry. I look at my part. Um, I discuss it with someone else, and ask God to remove it. And if it's something big where I'm having trouble and I can't see my part, which happens sometimes, um, I will call someone who I know won't enable me, and I'll ask them to help me see my part. And I try to exercise restraint of pen and tongue and not respond until I've done that work and seen my part. Um, sometimes, even when I do see my part, and especially if the other person's part is bigger, um, I need to spend time in prayer. I need to just ask God, like, God, save me from being angry. That's what the book says. Like, I need to be rescued from my own anger. God, save me from being angry. And I will pray for that person. I'll pray, like, God, please bless them with a good recovery, a good relationship with God a good marriage, a good, you know, whatever. Um, so those are those are the things that I would do for anger and resentment. Thank you. Thank you very much, Veronica, for your question this morning. And then Elaine G., your question, and then we're going to open it up for additional questions for Janet.
3: Hey, Elaine. Hi, everybody. This is Elaine G. from uh, New York. Um, I was listening uh, to you, and um, you're talking about um, – uh, the wife and the kids and the family. Well, uh, my my son, he's he's a periodic. I call him an alcoholic, but he has all the isms. And, and my daughter-in-law calls me up and tells me, well, you know, your 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 son is keeps on yelling and criticizing. The um, granddaughter that's thirteen. I, I, I mean, she she doesn't even want to make friends. This that. And do you think you could talk to him? Now I, um, I said I, I think you need to take him, him and yourself, to some counseling. And, and um, then she says, if we're together, will you say something if he if he does something? Now I, I've talked to other people about it, and and they say no. I want to know what your
4: opinion is. about interfering.
0: So I actually think that this is kind of treading on the grounds of like life coach issues. Um, And I'm not sure that I, you know, feel qualified to give an opinion. But I would, I guess I would just encourage you to read that chapter to wives. And it talks about the four different types of alcoholics, and to see what type your son is or may be. And then it, the chapter itself gives very specific guidance, like if he's type number one, you may want to do this. If he's type number two, you may want to do this. But I I don't feel qualified to say anything
4: more than that. Thank you very much, Elaine, for your question. Does anyone else happen to have a question this
0: morning for Janet? Hi, this is Carol About G. Now, the 12 principals. Hi, Carol G. Leia S. Christina J. S. Christina J. Mary Pat
1: I. Mary Becca Pat R. I.
0: Becca R. Lauren Grace B. Lauren Grace B. Okay. These are the 12 principles that we found in Chapter 8 to Wives that we're discussing and asking about today. So excellent. So let's go with that lineup. This is fantastic. We have Carol G., Leah S., Christina J., Mary Pat I., Becca R.,
4: and Lauren Grace B. So first up, Carol G., your question, please. I want to press star 1 real quick. Hi, Janet, I just wanted to say I appreciate your strength
1: and determination. I find it really inspiring. Um, And I just wanted to ask you, you said a prayer. Um, You had two prayers, and the one that I'm interested in is the very first one that you said. Is there any way
4: uh, one could get a hold of that? Hello? Hello?
0: Yeah, if you um if you email me, I'll, I'll leave my contact at the end. If you email
4: me, then I'll send it to you. Also, um, there's one other thing too. Um,
1: when you're working with the Sponsee, either on a fifth step or a ninth step, and um, they're working on harms that were done to them, and they can't seem to see their part in it. Um, and sometimes I can't even see their part in it like if somebody's just being innocent and something happens to them um, how do you work with the sponsor about what to do about it if they have a resentment
4: I mean are you talking about
0: like they're innocent like they're walking down the street and someone grabbed their pocketbook and took off with it and they resent the burglar, like that type of innocence. Uh, I'm just thinking of this response
1: was at a job and they gossiped about her, Um, something like that. Uh, So she had a resentment (laughs) about that.
0: So for that, um, so in general, I would say, yes, we try to help the person see their part. Um, I would if I would say for that a person's part might be I think what other people are saying about me is any of my business. that would be my part, okay, I got it, and I'll then I would look it. at like what are my right what are my defects, but yes, yeah, sometimes our part isn't something we did, it's our thinking right like We want people to talk about us a certain way, think about us a certain way, move the chess pieces on the board of life a certain way, and when they don't, we get mad. And I think to remind ourselves and our sponsees that my job is to swim in my lane and keep my eyes on God and what other people are thinking, doing, saying pretty much isn't my business. And if I let it be my business, that's where I'm at fault.
4: Thank,
0: thank, you. thank you very yeah, much, Carol, you for your that? question. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Next up is Leah S., and then Christina Jay will follow you, Leah. But for now, we're going to listen to, Ke- to Leah's thank question. Thank
3: you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. What a powerful, powerful presentation. My question is this. Um What do I do with my pain of a family member that is this continuously dishonest to me,
1: even when confronted in a gentle way?
0: So again, this is difficult without knowing all the circumstances, right? It's it's different if it's a husband versus like an eight-year-old kid, right? The answer would be, different. So I think in general so again it's,
4: I don't want to answer
0: not know not being in the weeds and knowing the situation. Um sometimes the thing we do is, you know, we just well actually I yeah, I, I can't really answer without knowing the situation. I, I'm sorry that you're in a painful situation. I know that must be awful. Um but without knowing details I, I don't feel Competent to answer.
4: Thank you so much, Leah, for your question. Christina Jay, your question, please, and then Mary Pat,
0: you'll be next. Hi, Christina.
1: Good morning, Janet.
3: Good morning, Melly. Thank you for both for your service, Janet. That was incredible, in depth as always. My question is: You get irritated. It's a slight irritation. You get irritated. It's a big irritation. Your boss comes in and quips at you. Your husband doesn't do something that you think he should do a certain way, whatever it is. What do your tenth steps look like around those kind of situations during any any given time during any given day? Thank you.
4: So actually,
0: for a lot of those things, I don't get annoyed easily. That is one of the gifts of the program that if my boss comes and quips at me, it's like you know like. God loves me. I'm not binging anymore. I have a great sense of purpose. Yeah. So my boss is in a bad mood, whatever, let him, you know, have a bad day. Um, but if I, if I were, so let's say he did, it's a hard one. Cause my boss is like super nice. So if he were to get annoyed at me, it's probably because I did something wrong. So I would look to see what I did wrong that, that set the ball rolling? Did he ask me to do something that I didn't do? Um, So that's what I do. I look to see where I got the ball rolling. Also my husband's really easygoing. So if he came in and he was, you know, annoyed, I would either look and see what did I do wrong? Or I would just think he had a bad day and is my and then I would look to see is my role here right because we always look to see what what's the role God would have is my role just to kind of write it off and say okay he had a hard day at work to just let it go or to say hey honey you know like you're you're being a little um, not as nice as you should be tonight like is something wrong because you know I like I don't appreciate being spoken to that way so if I feel I'm being spoken to in a unkind way that's not justified if I keep it in and just internalize it, it'll grow. So I found like in my marriage, if my husband on those rare occasions, when he does something that's, you know, when he like gets whatever, like not as nice as I think he should be, I generally say something in a, in a nice way. And this way it doesn't build up. And he'll either say, I'm sorry. I had a hard day at work or no, no, no. That's not what I meant. I meant whatever. Or he might say, you know what, it's because I came in and, I don't know, there was a sink full of dishes or whatever. So I find that often I have to address the situation with the person, and that keeps a minor irritation from becoming a major resentment. Thanks.
3: Yeah, so my question is a little bit more involved. Do you actually process a tenth with someone or do you take it to God first? My experience is that I'm taking it to God first because I find that, like you in this recovery, I'm not getting bothered as much by things that I used to. So I don't make as many 10-step calls. I take most things to God or I start a communication with the person. So that was kind of the gist of the question. Thank
1: you.
0: I mean, so it depends. I mean, it Thank you. Generally, mm-hmm. generally, yeah, I mean, I think I answered. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Christina, for your question. Mary Pat. Mary Pat, I, Your question, please. And then, Becca,
4: be prepared to follow. Star one, Mary Pat. Real quick, like. Hi, it's Mary Pat. Thank you so
1: much uh, for the meeting and and clarifying the uh, principles in this chapter. Um, I, uh, when you brought up children um, and idolatry, uh, that sort of just like really hit me in the side of the head. I didn't even, I guess, realize that what I I was doing, um, I could relate so clearly when you had brought that up, I was also going to ask about the prayer with regard to turning over uh, the children. But my question is, um, what was your approach or how is your approach in making amends to your children uh, for for that
4: idolatry? Thank you. So that is, I did
0: not um, make a direct amends. I, I think it would have been, like, harmful and even, like, kind of weird to go to my kids and say, I'm sorry I made an idol out of you. I really had to make my amends to God for not putting him on the throne. So it's really like spending more time with him. And I think that's what, and I just started um, acting, acting different. You know, unfortunately, this, this whole thing of idolatry wasn't pointed out to me until my kids were older. It would have saved me and them a lot of years of grief um, because I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong until finally someone pointed out the idolatry. Um, but I have made amends to them in the past or like maybe yelling at them when I shouldn't and all that. And I just sat down with them and I just told them everything I thought I'd done wrong and that I would attempt to do better in the future. And, uh, you know, on, sometimes I would do things like, let's say I had felt I had been overly critical on my daughter. So I figured, okay, what did I do? I caused her stress. So what would be an amend to do something that would do the opposite, right? Make her life easier. So I might do one of her chores for her. She'd come home and found, oh, I cleaned her room for her. So those are the kind of things I did. Thanks. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Pat, for your question. Mm-hmm. Becca R. Your question, please, followed by Lauren
1: Grace. Hey, good morning. This is Becca R., Recovering Compulsive Overeater from Kentucky, calling in from El Salvador. Um, Thanks for the presentation, Janet. I really appreciate it. My question is, um, have you ever or did you, do you ever, go through this chapter with sponsees or fellows from the perspective of um the role reversal that's the only way i've ever gone through it is not not as the wife but as the alcoholic was as the compulsive overeater and the harm i've done to my family that way does that make sense
0: yeah I I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, no, I've never done that. Thank you for the question, Becca. Thank you. Lauren Grace,
1: your question, please. And then after Lauren Grace, I think we're going to still have more time for questions, Janet, if you can hang
4: out a little bit. Sure. Excellent. Star one, Lauren Grace. Hi, this is Lauren Grace. My
1: question was answered, but it was it was just a beautiful share, Janet. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Oh, okay. All right. Be well, Lauren Grace. Be well. Okay. Anyone else have a question this morning for Janet B regarding to wives and the twelve principles she outlined and identified for us today?
4: Sarah T. Sarah T. Nancy H. And Jessica Jessica. Ah, oh, very good. Let's take those and
0: see where time allows then at that point. Lorraine Sarah
4: you're first with your question. Okay, Lorraine, I got you real
0: quick. And we'll see if we have time. Yeah, you bet. Okay. So we have Sarah, Nancy, Jessica, and Lorraine if time allows. Okay, great. Sarah, your question, please.
1: So what do you do when you've done your 10-step, you did your prayer, you prayed for the person, you found someone else you could help, and it's like the anxiety or like the resentment doesn't lift. Like how do you distract yourself? Thank you.
0: So I would say two things. One, I would have to ask myself, did I really see my part? Because most of the time, when I really see my part, the resentment goes away, like putting a pin in a balloon. But for those rare times, it doesn't, more prayer. That's the only really thing. I don't think it's a question of distracting myself, it's a question of dealing with the problem head on. So, did I not really see my part, or do I need to pray more? And in the chapter, Freedom from Bondage, it has a prayer and it encourages us to pray for two weeks for the person. So those are the two things that I do. Thank you, Sarah, for your question this morning. Next up with a poor question for Janet is Nancy H. And then Jessica, you'll be right behind. Yeah, hi, Janet.
1: Thank you so much for your extraordinary share I had, to cut out before the answer question and answer period, so I hope I'm not being repetitive, but what I found really helpful and different for me um, was to think about idols in terms of relationships. And I'm just wondering, um, it, it has me kind of in stuck mode thinking about how do I identify if I am making a relationship an idol? Thank
4: you so much.
0: So I think the answer to that is if we look and say, if I lost this, I wouldn't just be hurt. I would be, like, devastated and unable to recover.
4: Thank you. That's really helpful. hmm
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, let's see. We're looking at Jessica C now with a
5: question.
0: Hi, hi Oh, thanks
5: Melanie. Um hi, this is Jessica C. Um hi, Janet. Thank you so much for your share this morning. I got so much out of it. Um you, you uh there's been a couple questions about your prayer, um your idolatry idolatry prayer and i have heard you share that prayer before and i and i say it on a regular basis um I, I just i've wondered this often about this prayer um at the end it says you know god i'm excited I'm, I'm excited to see what you will do um and in earlier in the prayer it also mentions you know sort of freeing sort of freeing this thing up that we have the idolatry around for god to shower blessings on it I, I've often wondered: Is that sort of creating an expectation, or sort of hanging on to an an, an, an outcome um, and not letting it go? Because maybe, maybe, maybe God isn't going to shower blessings on this person or this scenario that we want to go our way. Is that sort of asking God in some way to say, "God, please make this go well."
0: I don't I don't think so. But again, I would say like as with any prayers, if something doesn't feel comfortable for you then um then don't use it. Okay, thanks Janet. Thank you, Jessica C for your question. Lorraine. Uh
1: can I be heard? Oh, there you are. Yes, Lorraine Ann. Yes. yes yes, yes. <laughs> Okay. Hi, and thank you so much, Janet. Fabulous, fabulous share. Um, my question is, and you mentioned sponsoring, I mean, in the beginning that you struggled to get abstinent and so did I for about a year and a half after coming into visits. Sorry, I'm walking. Um, my question is how long do you hang in with a sponsee who's all over the place and, you know, it has a couple days and loses it in a week and loses it, and you know that's my question. How how long? You mentioned uh, looking at my part, which I'm trying to do because I'm feeling frustrated. But um, how long do you hang in there? That is my question. Thank you.
0: So I think it depends on what they're doing. Like, if a person isn't doing everything I ask her to do. I don't hang in there very long. I give her one warning, two warnings, maybe a third war I mean, not really warning, but just a caution like, hey, if you don't, you know, if you're not doing this, it's, it's not going to work. Um, you know, we right. have to be willing. So if the person is doing everything I, I ask them to do and they're still picking up, I would have to suspect generally. I mean, then it's either I'm not telling them the right thing to do or mm-hmm. they're not being honest. And if it just keeps going, I mean, I don't know that I put a time on it, but if I felt that they were doing everything I asked, I mean, that's a tough one because generally you can pinpoint why a person picks up, right? There's they're something they're not doing right. So, Um, I would actually, I would actually, in that situation, I might go to my sponsor and say, you know, I'm sponsoring Mm -hmm. this person. She's doing everything I say. She's still picking up. And then my sponsor might be able to give me, like help me with questions to ask her that I might not have thought of. But I think I want to make sure I have done everything that I know, exhausted every possibility to help her before I say Mm -hmm. I can't, as long as she's doing everything I ask her to do. If she's not, I don't feel an obligation.
1: Okay, great. Thank you very
0: much. Thank you, yes. Thank you so much, Lorraine, and for your question this morning. We have time for one more burning question before we close out our day today with Janet. Anyone have a burning question?
4: Burning desire for a question to ask. One It's Lisa 21. L. Hi. Hi, Lisa. Ask your question.
3: Sure. I was just curious what do you do if someone has, say, so they're dealing with abuse and they have ongoing anger? How do you handle that when they definitely don't have a part in it?
0: So, in that case, again, like not being a therapist, I. You know, I would not feel comfortable telling them you should stay, you shouldn't stay, if we're talking about that. I would tell them they need to talk to someone who's qualified in these
4: kind of issues. Thank you very much. That's it. Short and sweet, just like that. Well, Janet, we've come to the end. Brilliant,
0: brilliant time together today in spiritual recovery. Thank you so much for all that you've offered of yourself today here.
3: Thank you so, 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 so much.
0: Well, I want to let everybody know that we will get Janet's contact information here pretty soon, but we're going to close out this meeting this morning as we always do by reading from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. Abandon yourselves to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in this fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May
1: God bless you and keep you.